0: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Monster House presents. Monster
2: Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. Imagine your average Bigfoot encounter as you've likely seen or heard from witnesses on TV or radio. You're in rural America, perhaps near a swamp or shadowy mountains. There are noises that you don't recognize, and then you see a large, ape-like humanoid walk through your field of vision and back into the wild, likely to never be seen again. Glimpses of a rare but natural creature, right? Well, if you've been listening to Monster Talk for a while, you've probably heard us hint that there's often stuff getting left out of these stories. We've certainly discussed rock-throwing, but have you ever thought about how much that sounds like poltergeists? Or how about footprints that begin nowhere in particular and then end in the middle of a mud patch or in snow? Or how about a Bigfoot accompanied by tiny, hairy people? Little feet? Goblins? Or ghostly figures in white accompanying or preceding the appearance of Bigfoot? Or glowing orbs? Or eyes that literally shoot out beams of light? Or teleports? Or apportations? Or UFOs? <laughs> There's so much weirdness around this stuff that my friend, Jeb Card, calls Bigfoot hunting forest seances. It's
0: actually
3: quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
2: Hey there, Monster Talkers. Karen and I have managed to get several episodes recorded about ghosts and paranormal topics and other monster-adjacent stuff, but I wanted to throw this episode ahead of those and get out something absolutely on-brand for us in the monster category. There's been a concerted effort in cryptozoology, whether intentional or not to sand off these unusual, unnatural, quasi-paranormal features to help Bigfoot seem more like a real flesh-and-blood creature. On this episode of Monster Talk, we're going to dive into the paranormal aspects of Bigfoot with authors Joshua Kutchen and Timothy Renner. Their two-volume look at paranormal aspects of Bigfoot is chock-full of what I'm tempted to call weird Bigfoot stories, yet what they make a very strong case for is that these may be weird in the not-mundane-physics-and-biology sense, but they're not even remotely atypical for the kind of features common to many Bigfoot stories. We don't even come close to touching on the variety of unusual features covered in these two books, so if the topic of paranormal Bigfoot is interesting to you at all, I think you'll find both of these volumes essential for your monster library. All right, let's get to
0: the Monster Talk.
2: Okay, tonight we're talking with Joshua Kutchen and Timothy Renner, and they are the co-authors of Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness, and the Bigfoot Phenomena, Volume 1, The Folklore, and Volume 2, The Evidence. Joshua is the author of several books covering weird topics, including cryptozoological, Fordian and UFOs and fairies. And these books include A Trojan Feast, The Brimstone Deceit, and Thieves in the Night. And apparently he lives literally a rock throw away from my hometown of Kennesaw. And we've also got Timothy Renner, who's an illustrator, an author, and a musician who lives in Pennsylvania. And his work can be found in books, magazines, comics, and on album covers. He's a podcaster, the creator of Strange Familiars, and he has frequently appeared on Where Did the Road Go? And his books include Beyond the Seventh Gate, Bigfoot in Pennsylvania, Bigfoot, West Coast Wildman, Don't Look Behind You and apparitions illustrations of the other and we'll have links to all those in the show
3: notes welcome to monster talk thank you for having us great to be here Hi right, guys <laughs> yeah it's great to be here uh i do live uh, just a stone's throw away from you and um up until recently have been in kennesaw like five days a week um Wow! So, yeah, <laughs> I've been I've been circling you like a shark, I guess. <laughs> I thought <laughs> like the shark circles you know? <laughs> its prey.
2: <Yeah. laughs> I saw some glowing eyes. Was that you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah.
2: So I am really excited to talk to you guys because, um, you know, we've been doing this show for more than a decade now, and. Too long. I <laughs> I hope it hasn't been too long, but I mean, yeah, even so, I mean, we went from being pure, is that real? Is that real? Is that real kind of skeptics too? I, I think I've really started thinking more along um, the folklore, the psychology, the sociology, the anthropology. The are, culture are, and everything. Yeah. All the cultural impact of this stuff. It, it's, it's so much more interesting and diverse than just is Bigfoot real or not. And I, I, I think... I I suspect we're probably in different places as far as belief in some aspects of this stuff goes, but I think we share the same deep enthusiasm for these topics and these stories. So I'm really excited about talking about this. Sorry,
0: Sorry. I think he's trying to ask if you guys are skeptics or believers or something (laughs) in between.
1: Um, I am absolutely a believer, but I end up arguing from the skeptic position. Uh, often, because uh, I do not believe it's an ape in the woods. It's something we can put in a cage. I don't think it's that simple. So I end up arguing with these uh, apers a lot about. Uh, I end up taking the, the, yeah, the skeptic apers. position. <laughs> I end up I taking mean, the skeptic position. I say I, I wear, I put on the skeptic's hat, and it doesn't fit very well. But I, I they yeah. kind of force me to wear it sometimes.
3: I mean, yeah, I, I couldn't. I, I, I resonate with a lot of what Tim said. It's probably why we ended up. Being able to write a book together. Um, nice. Yeah. You know, I was I was I was talking with Mike clelland the other night, um the owl guy, the owl UFO guy, and I was saying, you know, sometimes at the end of the day, you know, I, I think that people like me who are attracted to this field are people who really enjoyed like literary criticism, but never had the, the stomach to say something <laughs> new about like some of these great novels because what I really dig is is like you alluded to the psychological aspect of it. I mean that especially with like stuff like UFOs, there's so much symbolism that just is dripping off these encounters that even if they're completely, um, you know, quote unquote in someone's head, uh, there's still interesting stuff to be mined there. Now, you know, I, I, I kind of think that these things are from your head, but not in your head, um, is where I sort of fall on things. But yeah, like Tim, I sort of, we sort of end up, uh, uh, arguing from the skeptical standpoint, same with, you know, not only apers, but also people who believe that UFOs are aliens. I'm definitely, kind of in the anti extraterrestrial hypothesis camp on that one.
2: So where do you fall I mean you've written about uh fairies and fairy lore as well. Uh, so in I haven't had a chance to read those books. So where, where do you fall on that are 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 you I guess what I'm wondering is like I think a lot of people look at like Jacques Vallée's work and they they don't actually read it but they just think oh Jacques <laughs> yeah, Vallée yeah. he thinks UFOs were like fairies therefore UFOs explain fairies and then that's not what he's saying. I think it's the other way around. Yeah. He's saying, you know, maybe it's more fairies might explain UFOs, you know, or fairies yeah. might explain aliens. It, it's it, so I, I, it's I think this really easily misunderstood work, and I, I wonder where you how, how you fall in that whole sort of field.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think either are correct. I think both are trying to grasp at something that has an objective, real exteriority to the human condition, but neither system of, of belief, neither body of folklore, is really a hundred percent accurate in what it's describing and and, you know by that i mean you know i don't like to admit it but sometimes i wonder if this stuff doesn't come from us in some way as well But you know to be intellectually honest you kind of have to admit that maybe that's a possibility
2: i think um i think i i had the opportunity to go to a monster conference in texas uh in 2019 and it was put on by the religious studies uh group at um the University of Texas in San Marcos. And we were there talking about all kinds of monsters. And I thought it was really interesting because there was a whole lot of talks that sort of dealt with the role of uh, Yeti in Buddhism. But one of the questions that kept coming off uh, like outside of the actual talks, but like just around the tables and stuff, which is where the real magic happens at these conferences, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Is The question was, in what way or i i think i questioned is bigfoot a religion and then i think the question that was put back to me is well what is religion first of all but like how is bigfoot not a religion was even a more interesting question because i mean you know, outside of the question of is like literally do you worship bigfoot there's so much about the um the belief system the sort of religious experiences the the sort of communion with nature when you go out to look for Bigfoot uh, and these sort of sp- the offerings. And, and there's, there's so many aspects of it that feel like a religion. And and you can, I think, study the field from a religious uh, perspective. Not again, not talking about going to church or, you know, having a religious book, but just in this sort of sociological sense of how people practice their interaction with this, what is effectively a faith-based, unprovable
3: concept. I, I loved it. It was really interesting.
0: We need I mean, a I've, church of Bigfoot, I guess. Well,
3: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't want to hog the mic, so I'll let, I'll let Tim comment here. But, uh, I mean, th- these things can fill that sort of religious, religion-shaped hole in some people's hearts for absolutely sure.
1: I think it's a matter of trying to decide if, I mean, do you study cults the same as you study religion? Because it's definitely a cult. I mean, no doubt about that. Interesting. Yeah. And I guess you can. certainly. It's just yet another lens you can put
2: on it, I think. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And depending on, I mean, there's even different factions, right? There's different, you know, warring cults within under the umbrella of the the general, you know, cult of Bigfoot, Uh, you know, that's when you said this conference was put on by religious studies. I honestly thought you were making a joke about a certain organization in the South yes. when you said that, <laughs> uh, because I thought that's where you were going with it. Because uh, they're so you know devoted and and sure of their ideas as regards to these things, which you know, n- nothing being proven and and no one having captured one. I don't know how you can be, but uh, more power to them. That said, um, you know there are there are cult like aspects. I think. You know, I think Josh is going to some extent to point out how there's more of that with the UFOs. And and we kind of struggle to find those sort of uh, now they they do happen. You do have those sort of life changing moments when people have encounters and and they, they, you know, become more environmentally conscious and and so forth. Like like the UFO contact, the experience. But they're they're far less with with Bigfoot encounters than they are with UFO encounters. But, uh, you, you know, it's certainly there certainly the the gifting um thing when when people start the gifting exchange i mean that maps almost perfectly onto you know spirit gifting if you read that into folklore i've you know i've written some about that it's it's almost like a one-to-one thing it's it's to my mind when you're gifting with you know quote unquote bigfoot what you're doing is is spirit gifting and to my mind almost certainly it's just it's too much the same there so um you know, there's a lot of aspects of it that that kind of at least lock into religion. I don't you know, I don't know if it's fair to call them a cult or to call it a religion, but there's certainly aspects of it that that, you know, kinda you know, go step by step with that.
0: Maybe for some it's certainly a cult. But uh you talked about gifting. Could you just explain a bit more about what that is?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh many, many uh Bigfoot witnesses, or or those who who claim to encounter Bigfoot, maybe not, maybe they don't even see them sometimes, but uh, they enter into these gifting exchanges where they will leave something. Um, often it's food, but not always, in an area for Bigfoot. And Bigfoot, they believe, something leaves something uh, for them in exchange. And these uh, long-term exchanges go on, and it's fairly effective. I mean, a lot of people have really, really good luck with it. Um you know, whether they're exchanging with Bigfoot or whether something else is going on, you know, it's hard to say. I don't think anyone's actually seen, you know, Bigfoot leave the gift there, except maybe for, I think the Mike Green video shows uh Bigfoot, you know, leaving something at the stump, stump presumably that he was doing a long-term gifting exchange with. But um other than that, I don't think a lot of people have actually seen Bigfoot leave these things. It's just, you know, it's assumed but uh, they do get results, and and it's very very interesting. But you know, people have been spirit gifting for ages. I mean, the the simplest one to point out is uh, leaving cookies and milk for Santa Claus. That's you know that's, that's everybody does it on uh, well not everybody, but
3: you know most people who believe in the in, faithful. Uh, the faithful do. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and and you mentioned uh, you know is bigfootery a religion? Uh, there has actually a really cool chap who sent me. A book that he did uh, on uh, sociological studies um, in amongst paranormal believers, quote unquote. and there are some really interesting uh, some interesting correlations that he finds between some of these things. But the one that he found um, in Bigfootery. I'm going to keep on using that word, Bigfootery, was that they tend to be really conventional people with one exception, and that's that less than half of American Bigfoot conference attendees identify as Protestant, which is lower than the national average, and attend church less frequently than the national average. So I think that all these things um, do have a a metaphysical component to them, whether people realize it or not. I mean – I think even people who identify as religious in other aspects kind of get drawn into that a little bit because what you're really doing is you're, if you're doing it right, you're trying to figure out the way that the uh, reality works. I think.
1: I
2: agree. Although I would have to say as a religion, you could at least get in the pulpit and say, can I get an ape man?
3: <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there is a, there is a strong current of people in the Bigfoot community who I don't want to quite say um, are sort of evangelicals, but there there is a vocal group that say, "Oh, bigfoot are the nephilim," and they've tied into you know mm. uh, mm-hmm. all all these other pre flood myths, and they've they've tied into those sort of fallen angel categories, and that's why the you know bigfoot are able to do all these strange things and Mormon folklore. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: I, I, so I thought – I know for some of our audience, this is going to be a big surprise because, I you know, having probably not read this kind of stuff before, it, it's real easy to read into cryptozoology and look into it and exclude this weird stuff. And I think what your books do is a fantastic job of collecting the stuff that's frequently excluded, probably on purpose uh, from a lot of the cryptozoological <laughs> stuff – yeah, I ran into this. I, I we, uh, I think last summer I was uh, doing some work on the Ape Canyon case and went back and read Fred Beck's uh, uh, actual book that he put out about. And I was absolutely shocked yep. to find all this spiritualism stuff and all this weird stuff in there that that I would never seen portrayed in a documentary or written about in any other of the books. And so, and then to find it in your stuff as well was really. I was so happy that somebody else knew about this. Can you? Can you? introduce our audience to the ape canyon story i i think most people have at least heard of it but i mean, could you introduce it as it's usually told and then talk about what's left out i think that'd be
1: great yeah yeah so the ape canyon story as i knew it before writing where the footprint's End," volume one was a group of miners were in the mountains in washington state and they started seeing some bigfoot creatures and a guy shot at one and a group of bigfoot creatures came to their cabin that night and harassed them all night long. You know, banged on the walls and climbed on the roof and attacked the cabin and threw rocks at it and so forth. And and that's basically the story I heard. And uh, it sounds like this great bigfoot encounter that that uh, you know, like so many other bigfoot encounters, maybe a little more intense. And uh, but in in general, it's it's nothing out of the ordinary as far as if you want to believe it, that they're just creatures. And I think Josh found Fred Beck's book for me and said, and just pointed me to it, said, Hey, you need to check this out. And (laughs) I start reading it and I I was like, this is nothing that's been presented. So this case appears in Bigfoot literature again and again and again over the years. It's one of these kind of Hallmark cases. People point to it again and again and never is this stuff pointed out. Never, never, never. But Fred Beck, who was there, and if we're not going to trust the people who are there, I don't know who you can trust. You know, you're going to trust some, some newspaper articles that were written, you know, at the time more than the guy who was there. I mean, this guy was there and he's saying it all started when they saw what he called the ghost or the spirit of a giant Native American. Now, what does he mean by giant? I don't know. He, does, that's, he doesn't really clarify. One would assume not a bigfoot, one would assume he was looking at a giant Native American, and this Native American told them to follow a white arrow through the sky mm-hmm. into into the wilderness up there. So they did. so now they're following something that's in the sky. they're following something through the sky, which you know if that doesn't sound you know ring any UFO bells for you I don't I don't know what else you need. Along the way, they meet what they called another spirit. And how they knew she was a ghost or a spirit and not a normal person, again, he doesn't clarify. But he says they meet this other spirit named Vander White. And uh, I don't think she turned letters for a living. I don't think that was on the air yet. But, uh, <laughs> but, but Vander White, uh, I think she tells them where, the, where to find the mine. And they find this gold mine. They're basically directed to this gold mine by this arrow and by this other spirit. And, and she meant so much to them that they actually named the mine, the Vander White mine. Uh, they get there and they start hearing strange sounds coming th- from the ground, like, you know, huge machinery and so forth. They find one day they find two or three footprints. I forget what it was in the middle of an acre wide sandbar. So no footprints go- leading up to them. No footprints leading away from him just two or three footprints and they said it looked like something picked up whatever it was and and dropped it in the sandbar and then picked it up again and flew away with it, And, you know, all manner of weird things are happening. I think he had uh, an apport of a pencil. Uh, He said he knew the pencil was at his house and he needed a pencil and it just appeared in his hand. So these weird poltergeist like things are happening and eventually, they they see the creature, and then then the story plays out, you know, somewhat like like is reported. They see the creature. One of them shoots at it. They do attack their, their cabin. It sounds like a very harrowing night they had. And uh, the following day, I think they they you know scared them enough where they they packed up their stuff and left. I think the next day they saw a creature, and they shot it, and it fell off a cliff, I believe. Oh wow! <laughs> but Fred Beck himself says, you know. These things are supernatural. I forget the exact wording he used, but these these things are, are absolutely of the of the spiritual realm. They're something other. So they're not ape men. They're something else. And, you know, he's writing this with his son in the 1960s. So he, as far as I'm concerned, Fred Beck was way ahead of his time with this stuff. And, you know, all of that is, you know, Josh and I kind of use this term weird washing to say that, you know, people just wash the weird away from so many of these stories to just only present the stuff that sounds like it's a monkey, a giant monkey in the woods. And anything weird associated with it is they just don't mention it. It just goes to the side and uh, they, you know, well, we're just going to talk about the stuff that makes it sound like an ape, which is, uh, it's not a sound in my opinion. It's not, it's not uh,
3: it's, it stems from a desire to sit at the big boys' table of science, Sorry. Right? You know, that's, that's sort of where it's coming from. And Tim and I were are like, you know, no, we're dragging them back to the nerds' table. Like, no, <laughs> hang out with us.
1: <laughs> well, when
0: you were talking about the the arrow or the light uh, and drawing parallels to UFOs, it also made me think of the three wise men, and it sounded kind of faintly biblical, too, the yeah. story.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Um
0: absolutely. But uh, yeah, so you'd think that... Uh, these stories aren't uh, included, and there's this kind of this, this bigfoot washing taking place uh, because they do you think it somehow delegitimizes claims? And uh, certainly for people who have more of a cryptozoological slant, that they think they're being more scientific, and so adding these kinds of elements makes it uh, undermines it somehow.
1: Yeah, they're. I mean, in, in my view, and it's just you know what I think. They're so desperate to be accepted by mainstream science that they anything that's crazy. Anything that sounds kooky, they want to, you know, remove from uh, the equation. Sure. Some things they can't, like, like glowing eyes, for instance. So you know, no, no animal on Earth has glowing eyes. And they want to say it's, it's eye shine. Well, no high-order primate has a tapidum lucidum, which is required for eye shine, meaning reflective. Uh, tapidum lucidum is a reflective membrane in the eye. If you drive down the road and you see a deer and their eyes light up in their headlights, that's the tapetum lucidum reflecting your headlights. So they want to say, oh, it's not eye glow, it's eye shine. It's it's a tapetum lucidum. Well, (laughs) no high order primates have this. So that makes them unique among higher primates. But it doesn't explain all of the witnesses, many, many, many witnesses who insist, no, this wasn't reflection. This was self-illumination. These eyes glowed. They lit up. Some of them change colors. We've we've had you know a couple witnesses I've spoken to said they watched them change colors as they looked at them, they're blinking like Christmas tree lights. These they're insistent, and again, we don't have a lot other than witness testimony. So if a witness says the eyes were self-illuminating, kind of have to go with what the witness said, you know, rather than just go, oh, you're dumb, you're mistaken, you don't know what you were looking at. You know, if you do that, like Josh says, you can roll every case back to, well, you don't know what you're looking at. It must have been a bear. I think in deer, though, isn't it called hit them when you see (laughs) (laughs) them? Not for me. I know, but it's it's totally true, though.
2: I mean, I I think and this is um, this filtering issue is something that I think uh, we have a problem with on the skeptical side as well, where. We want to filter down to the natural explanation, and that's what we'd like to believe. And 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 it's really easy to say what well, we look
0: too fast.
2: Yeah, it's like well, and we want it to be natural because that's what we believe is real and 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 plausible.
0: Our worldview,
2: <laughs> but people experience things that are unnatural. I mean, they, their narratives do not fit the natural world, so I think it leaves us with the problem of. Well, we have to assume it's being created in the mind in order to make it fit our, 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 our belief system. And, and right. I think in the, in the other option is like the, like the cryptozoological people who want it to be natural, they just shave it off. They sand
1: it down to the natural parts. Well, once again, the, like I said, no animal on Earth has glowing eyes, but you know what does have glowing eyes? All kinds of things in folklore. Go back through folklore. You'll find stuff left and right with glowing eyes, including eyes that change color. Yeah. Glowing eyes that change color. So, you know, different elves and, you know, uh, goblins and, and trolls and you name it. You and know, we, glowing we, we, eyes. My,
2: my daughter and I just watched the uh, animated uh, Hobbit uh, last night and Smog had uh, glowing eyes. Like his eyes were like spotlights going all over the gold. And I was talking to her about how that that's a, a common thing in folklore, but it makes no biological sense.
1: Right, exactly. There's, it makes no sense whatsoever. Like you, you would think, I mean, unless they work by some, you know, mechanics that that we don't understand, you would think light light up eyes would ruin your night vision, not make them better. You know.
3: Well, and, and I think Tim and I still leave the door open for a biological ape if it has like. 20 different adaptations that have no precedent in the animal kingdom. <laughs> <Like> then, <laughs> then, then we're okay with it because, you know, we sort of systematically go through not only stuff like the tapetum lucidum, but, you know, these footprints, the the trackways sometimes just end in the middle of these fields and people will say, oh, the Bigfoot jumped, you know, to harder media that wouldn't transfer their footprints. But sometimes these are like literally in a field where there's nothing, there's, you know, un- untouched mud or untouched snow for like 100 yards. So there's nothing on the planet that that can jump that far. Um, so yeah, just trying to go through all these different, you know, explanations. Oh, well, Bigfoot jump. Oh, well, if you have three, toed Bigfoot tracks, they're inbred and trying to just show why these are not satisfying answers. And if they are, they kind of go everything against everything we know about mammals and primates and, and all this stuff. But I think a lot of the problem, part of the reason that um, a lot of cryptozoologists are so hesitant to embrace some of this weirder stuff is that they just aren't, as up to speed on consciousness studies as I think the ghost hunting crowd and the, the UFO crowd are. Um, because that when you start entertaining a lot of those ideas? Some of this other stuff becomes a lot more palatable. Ooh, can we, can you want to unpack that a little bit? So there aren't a lot of Hills that I'll die on in the paranormal slash supernatural, but consciousness studies are, are they're pretty high up there. Um, there are things that are happening in laboratories that are not dramatic, but they do seem to illustrate that certain people under certain conditions can nudge, um, statistics for certain events in statistically significant ways. Um, so again, not dramatic changes, but some really significant ones. Um, for example, um, there are some studies that, uh, Dean Radin I'm not sure if you're familiar with him but uh, uh dear, Dean Radin very familiar yep <laughs> okay yeah so I'm thinking about some of Dean Radin stuff that is um, measurable at the 6 sigma threshold which means that um which means that basically the overall odds against chance for anything else comparable would be you know assessed at over a billion to 1 so there's some really good laboratory work happening there and what's interesting about a lot of this consciousness stuff is that If consciousness is not tied to matter and is somehow fundamental, then it really does introduce an X factor into literally everything that we do. Um, And people have been looking at this from the laboratory angle and also from, you know, the psychedelic angle Um, and taking a look at, uh, you know, trying to sort of almost map these DMT realms. You know, Rick Strassman did some great work back in the 90s at the University of uh, New Mexico, I believe it was back in the 90s. Um, where people are having some experiences that are consistent and veridical, and the UFO crowd has really embraced these as saying, "Look, here's a mechanism, perhaps, by which we can explain the consistencies of these sightings." But you have the, you know, Bigfoot community saying things like, "Well, Bigfoot can't be anything but an animal because only animals leave footprints." But again, if if the, if these psi results are true, then the inten- the intangible nature of psychic phenomena has a tangible impact on the world which means that the the non-physical can impact the physical and uh, i think that's something that cr- a lot of these cryptozoologists ignore at their peril because once you start looking at this in sort of a weirder angle a folkloric angle um an angle that's sort of embracing the sort of bleeding edge of consciousness science things become a little bit more palatable i think
2: yeah i i we we've talked before on our show about the uh, skinwalker ranch case and i think uh it always felt like an outlier but if these cases are having the paranormal sanded off before they go into publication maybe their portal bigfoot isn't so weird
3: well skinwalker's a big problem anyway because i think that so you can't deny the fact that, like, the Uinta Basin is a weird area. It has a lot of strange folklore, a lot of strange sightings not tied to the Sherman Ranch. But there's some really good research um, that was done by uh, Erica Lukes, a UFO researcher, that has pretty much settled the case for me that there were at least some instances where uh, where non, uh, nonviolent technology... Um, like crowd control technology was being tested on people without their consent. Um, there's some really shady paperwork (laughs) buried in some of the documents, um, around some of the people who, you know, were, were guards there and whatnot. And it seems like that's at least a component. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that it was odd there to begin with? And the government thought that they could sort of write off these tests as being ooh spooky, supernatural, maybe, um, or does it mean that you know, the government's somehow harnessing some forces there, which is a little bit more, little bit more fanciful perhaps? Um, but there does seem to be a component there that was really just uh, people doing things to people. The government doing things to people without their consent it really doesn't appear that way.
0: Okay, I want to shift gear a little bit and just talk about the, the, the first volume in particular, and you focus on folklore in, in that, uh, that book. Um, So I'm wondering how you, you've already spoken about some witnesses that you've had conversations with. Uh, How did you go about collecting stories for the book and deciding what to put in and what to leave out?
1: We cast a pretty wide net. So we looked at Bigfoot literature. We looked at uh, old newspaper articles. Um, I, in my other books, I I collect a lot of um, these old, like, you know, before it was known as Bigfoot, they called them wild man. So a lot of these old newspaper reports. So we had all those to pull from. Uh, I do feel work. So I'm I'm in York County, Pennsylvania. And I, I think I'm the guy. And maybe there's another guy. But I, I think I'm the guy that people call when there's a Bigfoot encounter. I, I like to think I'm the guy. I hope I'm the guy. So <laughs> I, I meet a lot of witnesses you on the guy you want to give out your number? <laughs> <laughs> you can find me at com. I do not want to give out my number. Witness testimony, you know, when available. I, I meet a lot of witnesses through my podcast as well. I have, you know, people come on and tell their stories. So, um, you know, it, it was a pretty wide net we cast. And we looked, you know, as, as wide and far, I think, as we could, you know, for, mm-hmm. for examples of these stories. And, and there was no shortage of them. We didn't have a problem finding <laughs> your Bigfoot stories.
0: Are uh, we predominantly looking in uh Sorry to interrupt. Uh, predominantly okay. in, in North America or were you were looking around the world?
1: Uh, around the world, just to, a lot of times to demonstrate. So, if, you know, if I'm talking about glowing eyes, which I, I talk about in the second book, but you know, just as an example, I want to try to lay some cases of of stuff in, you know, around the world just to show that it's it's not just happening here. But uh, it ends up being, you know, I think we're in America. So I think, you know, the vast majority of everything comes from from the United States.
3: Yeah, the strange stuff. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's. I mean, especially. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, yaoi folklore in Australia has especially got a real t- high strange tinge to it. Um, oh,
0: it definitely does. I think there's a lot of uh, influence too. I, I'm. I live in the states, but uh,
3: yeah, we have talked a lot about. I said that art. just for you, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think probably the next strangest large hairy cryptid is is the yaoi but part of that is that a lot of these cultures um have not tried to force these large wild men into the the science box so you don't hear about the stories right. being strange as much they're always framed in like spirit context and whatnot but a lot of it too was you know timothy i think between timothy and i we've got a, a pretty solid grasp on some of the things to look for that are, are anomalous. And in a lot of cases, some of the stuff that we pulled from was from very straightforward sources that just didn't quite realize, I think, and I think some of them didn't quite realize what they were reporting and what they were saying, you know, because <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, that thing that you just said lines up with this, uh, you know, Russian wood sprite from this <laughs> <you> <laughs> know, one obscure manuscript or what, you know, that sort, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I I think a lot of the benefit and I've said this a couple of times. Um, for for me, is that Timothy has such a great background in field work that it really uh, complemented what I do well. Tim does what I do well as well. But <laughs> but um, but Tim Tim brought, bringing that combination of field work and some personal experience to it um, was really was really really exciting. And I think our, our brains both sort of work in the same way uh, on this stuff.
2: Well, I, th- I think one of the interesting things is when you're thinking about how to decide what to include and what to exclude you're facing the same challenge of of what it what is within a category and what's not within a category and and when you look at the wild man the hairy man the bigfoot the three-toed bigfoot the five-toed bigfoot there's all these you know the Enkidu from Gilgamesh I mean there's so many places where you go well, that's probably a Bigfoot, or that's probably a Bigfoot, but is it? I mean, like, are these things the same or are they different? And, and, and it, from a biological sense, it makes no sense to put a three toed thing with a five toed thing, but from a hairy humanoid perspective, it makes a lot of sense to lump them together narratively. So how, how did you like try to uh, use those sort of categorizations in, in your work?
1: Well, for the sake of the apers, they better hope it's all the same thing. Well, otherwise, <laughs> they're they're going to have to explain what five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different kinds of hairy creature, you know, upright walking creatures that are out there. So they they better hope it's all the same. But no, I think you know, loosely, if it was hairy and walked on two legs, you know, it was fair game for us. So I'm actually one of the creatures in this book. Is yes,
3: <laughs> yeah, okay.
0: in a broad definition. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, this is just really interesting to me because uh, it, it, on the surface of things, it s- sounds like it's a, a new angle on Bigfoot, but really, what you're saying is, this, a lot of these stories have been around for a long time. So it's, uh, it's, it's really a, an older angle, I guess, um, and, and we've kind of changed our perception of what Bigfoot is over time.
3: Well, I. I... Don't like to dwell on this too long, but there is kind of a weird colonialist vibe to a lot of cryptozoology. You know, no, no, no. Well, well, <laughs> coming in <laughs> and saying, "Oh, those silly, those silly natives—they believe this Savages. thing disappears. It, it must, ab- <laughs> it must absolutely be jumping into a ditch or behind a tree, because we know things can't disappear." So a lot of it, you know. Sure. Um, I do think Tim and I went to some some great pains to look at a lot of indigenous lore and to not again not treat the cultures as monolithic. Cause you know, North America, people said that this thing was a spirit. They said it was an ape. They said it was a man who became a spirit. They said it was a little, half and half, like all sorts of different things. So you can't say, you know, in native American folklore, Bigfoot is so-and-so It's really trying to zero in on a lot of these, um, on a lot of these individual tribes. But that's, I think that's the thing that I found startling is that some of the things that you see in modern reports are, Absolutely um, described in a lot of this older literature. I mean, um, one of the things that cryptozoologists used to like to trot out as sort of a, I guess not Deus ex Machina. I guess it's Deus ex, Deus ex Sasquatch um, <laughs> to, to answer everything is um is infrasound. You know, so if if Bigfoot disappeared, he zapped you with infrasound, which are these subsonic frequencies that indeed can disorient. With it. Oh, Bigfoot zapped you with infrasound, and your your vision went hazy, and that's why you didn't see where it went. Um, and they like to keep on trotting that out, but to a lot of indigenous people, um, it was, no, these creatures have the ability to hypnotize you. And that uh, kind of seems like a more parsimonious place to <laughs> to start from than saying everything is infrasound. Because infrasound, I think Tim mm-hmm. and I have a running joke that like everything that's strange is always infrasound.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's the uh, it's it's marsh gas for UFOs. Right. So, (laughs) well, I I think a pet peeve of mine is the people, you know, the Bigfooters who want to say that Native American folklore about hairy men is definitely Bigfoot and that's a real animal, but they're just going to ignore the talking coyote. Right. Like, OK, wait a minute. <laughs> it's common folklore. You know, I, I I, don't think it's right to just, you know, pick out the things you like and just exclude everything else as, as myth. Right. So I, I think uh, that's what we do. <laughs> that, that's exactly along the colonial appropriation stuff you're talking about. Right. Sure. Yeah. But uh, going back to cases that are commonly uh, talked about Bigfoot lore and they shave off the weird or or sand Maybe I should stand off. They sent off the weird, but maybe there's no better case than that of the Momo story because that's one that always seemed a little weird. Uh, the way it gets stuck into a lot of Bigfoot books, but it's a lot weird. That is a strange case. Could could you talk a little bit about the Momo story? And we were probably going to end up doing a whole episode about that because uh, I I, I <laughs> I'm I've just it's started tough. watching the. Uh, Small Town Monsters coverage, and I love how they're
1: doing it as a sort of a, a, a lost movie thing that's really funny. Mm-hmm. So. I I asked Seth Breedlove when he came on my show, I was like, did, did you do, because I hadn't seen the Momo thing when he came on yet, and I was like, did you cover the weird stuff? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we cover the weird stuff. And they kind of like, Dip their toe yeah. in the weird stuff. In that. It's weird.
2: It's a weird case.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's really really odd. And I think I think probably Josh can speak to it better than I. He I went into it a little bit in one of my chapters, but he really kind of kind of went into it a little bit more. I mean, there's there's UFOs and there's voices from the woods and and uh, I'll I'll go ahead and let, let Josh speak to it because, like I said, I, he... there's
3: Bigfoot, he, uh, light coffee. A That's
2: a you know these are good questions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah exactly. <laughs> well, well, uh, way back in 1972 in the incredibly confusingly named town of Louisiana, Missouri, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Harrison family, uh, saw a large hairy creature, uh, it was, you know, tall, ab- over average man sized. And, uh, was carrying a dead dog and this sort of kicked off a series of, um, basically monster hunts in the area. Um, where this creature was seen. And sometimes they would go into places where they thought it had been. And there was this horrible smell and they thought, well, maybe the smell is some sort of defense mechanism or this or that or the other. But, um, it's interesting because at the same time that this was happening, there was a lot of associated UFO phenomena. Um, Some people
0: enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a
1: quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon.
0: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast.
3: a Pentecostal church that was letting out. And the uh the congregation saw two fireballs shoot from Mar- this area called Mars off Hill, which is where they thought Momo was hiding out. And uh one was white and the other one was green. And uh they actually descended into the woods far off. Um uh later there was another <laughs> there was another UFO sighting of something that performed this Perfect gold cross on the moon, which I kind of think sounds a little bit like Fatima or something. Yeah, <laughs> um,
1: yeah.
3: Uh, Apparently, it lit the road up like it was as bright as day for them to drive. Um, there were a couple of other fireballs that were seen uh, in the area as well, um, and uh, as you alluded to, a uh, couple of anom- examples of these anomalous voices that were in the woods. Um, people who were searching for Momo would hold hear things like, you know, you boys stay out of these woods by this old man voice, or, you know, one of them famously said, I'll, I'll take your cup of coffee, which is really strange.
2: Um,
1: Over my dead th- body. With, yeah, <laughs> right. You can just, have my cup of coffee when you trade me some tasteless pancakes for it. <laughs> right.
3: Um, and just, just more of these weird UFOs were seen, and that's also a case where supposedly Momo, Missouri monster, um, left behind these three-toed tracks. You know these three-toed footprints. People who are conventional bigfooters will say that they only occur in specific areas, and that's it's indicative of uh, you know inbreeding or something. If you've ever looked at one of these footprints, they're not a deformity. Like there's just no way. They, they look like like these giant, like three-pronged, almost chicken feet kind of things that are, um, you know, the the the. It's, it's not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, and 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 it's manifested identically on both feet. So if it was a deformity, it probably wouldn't do that. If it was an injury, it probably wouldn't manifest across both feet. And they're actually pretty consistent. Um, but what's interesting is that there are plenty of examples, um, in folklore, not only some indigenous folklore here in the U.S., but also, um, in Europe of you know chicken-footed apes or turkey-footed apes. There was an example from County Tipperary in Ireland where. The fairy queen was upset that someone was, um, was you know, building on her fairyland. So she actually ended up uh, transforming into an ape with turkey feet. So I, I, I don't know what to make of that, but 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 that that's another folklore connection. And I think uh, if you look at that coupled with you know a lot of this witch folklore that you know witches some witches would have chickens feet and some fairies would have chickens feet as well. Um, it just Raises a lot more questions than answers, but that's but somehow that's still more convincing to me than than the conventional explanation that it's a deformity or that it's an injury or something.
2: It is definitely some kind of foul beast. But... <laughs> <laughs>
3: womp, womp. I warned
0: you. So, in your research, uh, you talk about the intersection uh, between Bigfoot and an astonishing array of phenomena that I wouldn't have uh, typically linked in in my head. And you've already spoken a little bit about fairies and UFOs and now witches too. Uh, but I'm interested in the links between uh, Bigfoot and poltergeists and women in white and ghosts. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your findings there?
3: You want to start with poltergeists, Josh? Yeah, I guess so. Um, so I, I really wish that I could take you know full credit for this, but it, it had kind of been... Mentioned in passing in a lot of you know cryptozoological um, circles that oh, you know if you take a look at all the bigfoot stuff without bigfoot it kind of looks like poltergeist cases and it's true if you look at sort of that subset of what the bigfoot field researchers organization call class B reports which are basically you know thrown stones anomalous voices anomalous smells. You know, large footprints, um, feelings of being watched, you know, knocks or, you know, wood knocks is what they call them. But knocks or raps in the forest. If you take that same suite of phenomena and you put it in the house, it's it's a poltergeist. Like, <laughs> that's what everybody would sure. call a haunting or, or a poltergeist. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a lot of this stuff, I think we're looking at a lot of the same things. Well, in terms actually, of with, with those normal. three-toed feet, are they poltergeists? Oh, my God. <laughs> It's the dad joke sorry. Yeah, I, I blame Tim cuz he started with that Vander White joke which was just.
2: Incredible. Uh it's an endemic problem on the show. I apologize. No, lightly. I lightly apologize.
1: Sorry, it's go ahead. It's been a pandemic problem in my house. I have my whole family doing these stupid puns now. It, it's a pandemic, yep.
3: A oh, yeah. Um yeah, so, so a lot of these things really do seem context dependent. Yeah. And uh I find it even more interesting that, you know, the two places that you would see poltergeist occur were typically, you know, a around a young person, typically a female with sexual frustration that that all that sort of ageist sexist research has has been expanded with um. The guy by the name of Christopher Larson, who, who has pretty much demonstrated that poltergeist phenomena can happen to anybody. We sort of need to abandon that idea. But the idea was that poltergeist phenomena in parapsychological circles was understood to not so much be a, a you know a spirit phenomena, but it would tend to happen around, um, you know, adolescent focuses, adolescent uh, focal points, um, or. It would happen in seances, you know, these spiritualist seances that you'd find um, in the late 1800s and whatnot. Um, and interestingly enough, there are – I can think of at least three or four different cases where during these spiritualist seances, they actually manifested a large hairy man. Um, I, I believe it was um, Frenet Klusky was a famed medium who – manifested one and uh the paranormal author Stan Gooch uh i believe was at a séance where he saw this figure that was either like a caveman covered in furs or an ape man covered in in hair um so again that's just another another connection that says maybe we're looking at something completely different out there in the woods that isn't you know if if you incorporate that poltergeist idea it helps to not only explain the stuff that we associate with Bigfoot, but also the weirder stuff that people want to throw out. Did,
1: did you talk about lithoboly, Josh? Lithoboly?
3: I always said lithoboly, but that's probably because I live in Georgia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> lithoboly, lithoboly, um, the throwing of stones. Um, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that Tim brought that up, because like, that's something that you see in poltergeist cases, Bigfoot cases, you know, um, generalized hauntings, uh, witch stories and, and fairy stories as well. The idea that these stones will be thrown out of nowhere in poltergeist cases, they are often a ports and there are some actually, um, some really good uh, reports and some pretty good evidence of these stones, like manifesting <laughs> in in the middle of a room, a really famous poltergeist um, was the Humpty Doo poltergeist of Australia. And they actually <sighs> reported some of this. Um... Oh, I, I heard a sigh.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was uh, working with a group called the Australian skeptics at the time that this happened.
3: And oh, uh, okay. yeah,
0: so I, I, I wasn't directly involved, but uh, yeah, I, I do you know of that story? And it's a great name, isn't
2: it? And, uh, and hump to do is literally one of my favorite words at this point. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's
1: a
3: great name. I'm sure that you have, a, you have opinions. So I'll, 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 just leave the, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll sort of uh, pivot and say, they captured evidence consistent with what people report in uh, poltergeist cases, which is that literally these stones are warm to the touch and they allegedly captured, um, a stone on thermal video that actually started hot and got colder. Um, these reports, whatever it is, seem to start out warm and get colder. And this actually happens in Bigfoot airports, but people have always been assuming that the Bigfoot was, you know, holding rocks in its hand or something. But if you look at the Minerva monster, uh, flap of the, I believe the 1970s in Minerva, Ohio, um, some of the kids who had interactions with this Bigfoot creature up on the ridge behind their house that they would, you know, take a rock and mark an X on it and throw the stone. And when the stone would be thrown back, it would be warm to the touch. With, with
0: what I saw, I think it was a channel seven news or something or some current affairs TV show that went in there and, and did some filming at the time and uh, actually caught one of the, the um, members of the household throwing rocks and throwing batteries and other things. But I think that they claimed it was kind of a pious fraud thing where, Oh, the phenomena was true, but they were having to try to prove to this uh, TV crew what was, what was going on to give them an example of, of that kind of thing. But I think that there were batteries found on fans as well that would send them hurling around the room and all, all different kinds of
3: things. Well, and you know, that's something that I realize this is going to sound like being an apologist of the highest order, but I will agree that, you know, every time, you know, you see these poltergeist cases, there often is some point during the investigation where people are, um, are literally just faking stuff. Um, I tend to be of the opinion that a lot of these things will, a lot of people will have startling things happen to them, um, you know, genuinely anomalous things. And then they're asked to provide evidence or to, you know, to sort of perform for it. And, you know, you see this in Mm -hmm. the Uri Geller spoon bending, and you see this in every poltergeist case, you see it in, you know, the contactees of the 1960s and seventies, the UFO contactees who had these incredible experiences and then kind of developed these weird (laughs) cults and religions around themselves. Um, I think that, I think that that's part of the phenomena and, you know, uh, well we we talked to Guy Lyon Playfair about the uh,
2: infill poltergeist and he talked about that as well where you know he believed it was all real but Janice did fake some of it and got caught you know it's just, it's just like all these mm. it seems to be a common thing among like literally every poltergeist case where at least once or twice someone's caught faking it and it's always about them saying that they felt pressure to continue something that was not reliable you know and and, and I I'm sympathetic, you know. I, 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 I'm super skeptical, but I, I certainly can feel the like. Once the story has gotten to that point that there's people there looking for the phenomena,
3: there's got to I mean, be. The a people who really pr- believe. Yeah, there's got to be a lot of pressure, you know. Well, yeah. and and you know, if if you look at this from like a meta, um, not a metaphysical, but just like a meta, like textual level. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. George George Hansen's The Trickster in the Paranormal has said that this is just this is just what happens because all, a lot of these paranormal phenomena embody that trickster archetype and the trickster archetype really does, um, it's sort of self-defeating, self-negating. So the idea that there is some sort of, again, I'm a big fan of archetypes. I know is too, <laughs> um, but there's some sort of archetypal drive nature, it, it, that nature, uh, that in its nature sort of never wishes to be discovered and sort of orchestrates and pulls the strings um, behind the scenes. I know that sounds kind of silly and highfalutin, but I, Kind of love that idea, too, at the same time. Uh, and it's, it, it is it is admittedly a convenient excuse, but it is very consistent with a lot of what he's seen. Because um, you see the same thing with, uh, you know, uh, gurus and um, yeah. to the extent that, you know, gurus and con men are often the sort of the same thing. <laughs> that was the one of Hanson's big as well. And,
2: well. and coming from the skeptical side, I find it interesting because I see the archetype as being a culturally available template that people feel compelled to conform to. And so, you know, whether either of our sides like either interpretation is real, we still find this common narrative structural thread in common across these things. i I, I it's fascinating to me. Yeah.
3: It it scratches my um my inner Jungian, inner literary critic sort of <laughs> sort of itch that I have.
0: <laughs>
3: you know. Well you're young at heart. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh in terms of classification then if we're we're talking about uh poltergeist like activity and, and uh bigfoot like uh, descriptions or, or symptoms of, of poltergeist, are we talking about these things being uh classified as Bigfoot or poltergeist or both? I guess it gets well, a bit muddy.
3: Yeah, I mean that that sort of gets to my earlier comment about fairies and aliens. I think Tim and I would both just agree and say the other Tim has a great, uh, a great, uh, wor- a quote that he's sort of workshopping around. I hear him lately talking about, uh, Hey Tim, it's all poltergeists. It's all fairies. What do you say? Guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm really agnostic on, on the categorization of this stuff. I, I, I tend to think fairy lore maybe has the most accurate interpretation of a lot of this stuff, but having said that, um, I don't think it's accurate at all. All I really feel comfortable saying is that I strongly suspect um, that we are dealing with that. a lot of things in the, in the paranormal have some sort of genuine basis. And even if, even if not, I think we overestimate the number of genuine hoaxes and frauds there are in this field. I think that a lot of the just average reports and cases and accounts that you see if they are not truthful are just misidentifications um i don't think i think that there aren't a lot i don't think there are a lot of people who are outright lying um at least the, in other words the people believe that they saw what they saw and i think tim's experiences on strange familiars would sort of speak to that as well he's, he's sort of you didn't you say you had somebody who had a i don't know where did you talk about this tim but um you had somebody who was a like Red voices for a living or something. Yeah, he was he was trained at a casino, and he,
1: they they trained him to tell when people were lying. And uh, he was talking to me about about the show, and he said, uh, "Now this is probably around you know episode one hundred or so. So say I've I've had maybe eighty guests on at that point. And at that time, he told me, you know, hey, I really like your show. Um, he's like, out of all of it, you know, with my training, he's I think he said there were two people that were lying." You want to know who they are, and I said no, no, I absolutely don't want to know because it's, you know it's, I just don't, I don't, I don't want to know. But he said he said that's a pretty good record. He's like I can tell when people are lying. Uh, no, I don't know. You know, I have taken him at his word too. Maybe maybe he couldn't tell, but uh, if he was accurate, that's that's pretty good. You well, know? I think uh, that's the thing. You know, as
2: skeptics, I think we always take the position that until you prove something, it's it's we have to assume it's not real. Mm-hmm. But. Clearly, people are reporting stuff sincerely a lot of the time. Whether it's their interpretation is real or not, they experience something, and that's how they came away from it. You know, that's what they got out of it was something paranormal, supernatural. Yeah, we think a lot of them are jumping to conclusions, but you can't deny that people have weird experiences, and and it's what they make of it, right? That's that's what
1: I find fascinating. And that at this it's
0: point. common, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. My my, my wife was. Yeah, what well, is a, very much a skeptic. And she moved from literally saying, you're all crazy to she came with me to a few conferences and so forth. And, and, uh, I get great stories there. People, I, I know when I'm going to get a story because someone will stand away from my table about 10 feet and wait till everybody else is going. They'll kind of like shuffle their feet and look <laughs> down and everybody else will leave and they'll come up and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll start out to just say, like, you really believe in this stuff. And, you know. If, you know, so yeah, you know, I said, yeah, you know, I talk to people all the time. And then then, they'll, you know, once they get comfortable, they'll tell their story. And she's been at the table with me and heard people tell their story. And and you know, I remember specifically like this, this one fellow, like just waited and waited and waited and, came and specifically asked to talk to me and came up. And his daughter actually had to lead him up was like talk to this guy. Like, yeah. like, okay. you know, no one has believed me about this. And he sat there and talked to me. He was very emotionally moved and and so happy that he could just get this story off his chest. And uh, he walked away when he was done. I mean, I begged him to come on my podcast. He had no interest in that. He just wanted to tell a story and go, he walked away and my wife looked at me and, and she, you know, very sincerely said, I don't know what he saw, but he saw something. And that's all I asked for. That's all I can ask for. That's that to me, that's like honest skepticism. Like, you know, she she just like, I don't know what he saw, but he saw something. And that's uh, to me, that's, that's like I said, that's an honest skepticism and, and I can't, I can't really ask anybody to go further than that. You know, I, I tend to take witnesses at their word, but if, if you just want to go with, I don't know what they saw, but they saw something that's, that's
3: completely honest. I think sometimes I wonder if like the whole shebang isn't about belief, you know, because if you look at, uh, if you look at stories of any of these things, alien abduction, Bigfoot encounters, um, you know, fairy (laughs) encounters, um, or gin encounters, I should say. Um, they can all be dispelled through prayer to whatever you believe in. And this is interesting because, um, you know, I, a Christian myself, but having said that, um, it doesn't seem to really matter what you pray to in these encounters. And uh, that makes me wonder if belief and intention aren't really what a lot of these things, if they are real, draw their uh, power from.
2: I, I, I have a really complicated view of belief as being tied into like a a, a neurological predictive model where like we evaluate the world through like a, a neurological structure of belief like it's like literally a physical modeling system where we decide what's real and what fits with our world and what doesn't and and I have to say that like those those matters of faith where we can push away the thing, we can reject things we don't believe. Like, literally, they literally don't fit with our neural model of the world, so therefore they're just not real. That's, I think that's, there's something to that. Whether, <laughs> like, that doesn't tell us whether things are real or not. It's just about whether we as individuals accept them or not, you know?
1: Oh, that's interesting. I kind of go the other way, where I say, like, the other, whatever these other things are, are not allowed to confirm one way or another. So, you in, in other words, they almost respect any amount of faith. So, you know, it doesn't matter. They're well, not allowed to confirm. Yeah, that's what that's the uh, the Fright Night model. You got to
2: have faith, right? I <laughs> 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 love that.
0: Uh, I'm wondering what you pray to if you see Bigfoot then.
2: Ooh, uh, whatever's handy.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the god of dry underwear. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, it's like I, I'm the skeptic who always looks for Bigfoot at night when I'm driving. You know, it's like I, I want to speed up and hit it because if it's real, I want to leave a, a dent in my fender and have
1: some evidence, right? So, yeah. You may hit it. You may dent your fender. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but even if you killed it, it wouldn't be around for long. Well, that's, that
2: uh, that's possible as well. But I'm yeah. sure
1: gonna try. That's. <laughs> 100% of the time, it, people who have claimed to kill it or, or possess a body in one way or another, not 99% of the time, not 99.1% of the time, 100% of the time, the bodies disappear. They go missing without question.
2: I think the one exc- exclusion would be the uh, the Bigfoot here in Georgia, which turned out to be a, a suit full of possum guts. But yeah, yeah, other than that. <laughs> <laughs> if there ever was
1: a real body, and I don't think there was in that case. Well, now there's that know? question as well. Yeah. Yeah, that,
2: what a shit, God.
1: I'm embarrassed for my state. (laughs) Yeah. That's, Um, that's one of the, those hoaxes that Josh writes about in his trickster chapter.
3: Yeah. And what's interesting about that, you know, I sort of mentioned George Hanson's trickster thing and, uh, He talks about how hoaxes embody these specific aspects we saw time and again that are all, again, aspects of these trickster figures. Um, You know, social leveling is a big thing with a lot of these trickster figures because they upset norms and social norms. And, you know, with the Georgia Bigfoot hoax, you had uh, uh, a a police officer who claimed that he was working with – a con man to get you know not a con man sorry a a convict to get the bigfoot body out of the woods <laughs> and then and then and then but also but also social leveling in terms of someone being brought low because he was like this decorated war not war hero decorated police officer because he'd been wounded in the line of uh in the line of of duty and he completely lost his job and was disgraced after this and again the idea of liminality he he's he co- cooked up this hoax during this time where he was on medical leave, so he wasn't employed, but he wasn't now employed. So you've got that liminal aspect in there as well. It really is interesting to see how um how these things, again, from a Jungian perspective, really do seem to to adhere I never to those thought archetypes. of this before.
2: Maybe he was on pain medicine. Maybe he was an oxymoron.
0: <laughs> <laughs> them away.
2: That was terrible. Sorry. <laughs>
1: I did. You can... you, you, you've done better. You've done better. Let's <laughs> go that way. I'm. I'm just upset being out. Dad joked left and right here. I'm, <laughs> I'm out. <bad. laughs>
2: I just wanted to say though, it, you know, skepticism aside. I mean, I don't think that's really a factor here. That, that, I loved these books and highly recommend them to our listeners. They they are a tremendous service to the field because I think they're collecting all the stuff that's sanded off in the other literature. I think. I mean. Like whether I agree whether this stuff's real or not, you guys are doing a great job of bringing a bright light onto a a, a whole segment of the of the field that's commonly just pushed off into the shadows, and it it, it needn't be. I, and, and even though I've seen it before and noticed it, you've brought a bunch of stuff to bear that I had not read, and and I think you 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 raise a really critical. You know, issue here, and I do have to wonder. Oh, besides that, just, so that's me praising the books. Uh, links in the show notes. How has this been accepted or, or received by the uh, the pelts and paws crab uh, crowd? <laughs> sorry, sorry, like, w- the people who believe in cryptozoology and believe this is a real sort of segment of biology. How have they felt about this uh, this uh, this this book, and, or these two books, and, the, and this sort of bringing a light to this part of the field?
3: I I was just going to say, I love Pelts and Pauls. I also love uh, tracks and turds. Um, But yeah, but Pelts and Pauls is pretty darn good. Uh, Go ahead, Tim.
1: I think they're desperately trying to ignore it and really, really wishing it would just go away, but uh, it's not. And happily, I think with some people, it's forcing a change in the conversation and it's forcing them to at least acknowledge that this weird stuff happened. I mean, the, the simplest way to put it is we don't have much other than witness testimony. And if you're going to believe a witness, when they say I saw an eight foot tall ape man in the woods and then toss out the part where they say, but its hair was bright green or its eyes were glowing, or there was a UFO flying over its head. (laughs) It's not intellectually honest at all. You have to, if you're going to take the witness at their word that they saw an ape man, then you got to include the whole account. And so many of these counts have been just weirdwashed and, and so forth that, uh, you know, I'd, let's have the conversation. But that's if we're going to if we're going to use witness testimony, which, like I said, that's, we don't have a lot more. We got some really nice footprints and stuff, Cass. But uh, beyond that, we don't have a lot more than witness testimony. If we're going to use witness testimony, then let's use all of the witness testimony and let's believe people, uh, you know, all the way then.
0: Yeah, yeah that and, was weirdwashed. I, earlier I said Bigfoot foot <laughs> It's, a, it's been a long day.
3: <laughs> oh, no, no, you're good. Um, and, and I would add to that the fact that, like, I don't, I, I, I don't know if some of these stories are true, but I do find it fascinating when you see something from somebody who submitted a report to the BFRO and never believed in something, and they say something really specific that you can find, you know, referenced a couple of places in this text that, you know, somebody from, you know, Pelham, Georgia would never have read this, right? They would have never, even with the internet, they would never have, it's highly unlikely that they would have found this one little detail from folklore and, uh, you know, sure enough, it's, it's there. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means that, you know, we as human beings all have, again, collective unconscious, if we all have this, idea of what you know the supernatural should be and you know we have these uh experiences and we sort of graph those universally held beliefs onto it um or what but um i think it's really i i think that's really where a lot of these unexplained anomalous studies really gain their strength is from that 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 longitudinal comparison um but in terms of in terms of the reception. Uh, there, there, there was some snark from some, uh, from some people early on. <laughs> we had some, Tim and I had some snark before we even released the book, didn't we Tim? <laughs> um, but it's, it's been a lot. I have, I haven't heard as much afterwards really at all. I, I think there's a couple people here and there. Um, but nobody has really been for me at least combative or, um, confrontational about it. I think Tim's had some more interactions with people than I have, but, uh, you know this was begging to be written and i feel you know lucky that we we were able to do it but it really should have been written a long time ago because uh yeah. i I've, I've heard for a long time that once you get the people at the conference out to the bar after their lecture and you get a couple drinks in them that's when they start saying you know what's weird i saw all these you know orbs of light when we were on our on our uh, bigfoot hunt, we didn't see any big any bigfoot, but people had seen bigfoot there and before in the past, and always we saw where these lights, or, you know, or you know, the, just I see all these weird synchronicities and stuff. So and you I know think these say. things happen. Yeah. But once you go portal bigfoot, you never go mortal bigfoot. That's what they say.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot.
0: Uh, uh, I think it's such a great concept uh, for a book, and and you're right. This really should have been written earlier, and uh, over the years. Blake and I have encountered some of these kinds of links and and, uh, just the more you you talk about these connections, it's uh, a lot more evident to to us, Uh, but I still can't really see the link between Bigfoot and women in white. Oh. Is there a particular story there? I'm just curious about that. I, we, I know we need to close off soon, but uh, that, I'm. Th-
3: thank you for remembering that. Um, and I, I'll say, I, this is my little disclaimer that I say every time Tim Tim talks about this. I thought Tim was absolutely full of it. He's like, have you ever noticed that people see cryptids or Bigfoot and they see women in white? And I was like, no, Tim, you're you're full of it. And sure enough, he <laughs> comes back with like what I think is the best chapter out of that first book. So I'll I'll sit back now. Cool.
1: cool. Yeah. Um. I mean. <laughs> How soon did you want to close up the show? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Talk as long as you like. <laughs>
1: uh, um. So th- this started uh, on Sasquatch Chronicles, and these uh, there's a certain case where these two brothers are seeing all these different Bigfoot creatures, and and so forth. And then they start seeing this weird woman walking around their neighborhood. Who was in these white? She always wore white and had these like oversized shoes. And uh, this is a really interesting aspect to the case that I that I took note of um, and uh, kind of paid attention in, in the forums there. And then other people started saying, hey, I, I saw this weird woman in right, white and drove down the road two miles and then saw Bigfoot and, you know, th- things like that. And, and I start so I started kind of paying attention to it. And then I, I was uh, – some folks ended up coming on my podcast, but they had their own podcast, and they were talking about seeing this – this ghost of this, this woman in white. And uh, I, for some reason I thought, I was like, you, you're going to see a cryptid. You're, they're going to see a cryptid. And then within days they saw like w- what, what conforms to like the, the devil monkey kind of uh, saying like a, like a four or five foot tall kind of baboon like creature. Uh, they, they saw this, this thing within days. And so then I was like, Oh my goodness. So I started talking about it a little on my podcast and I was contacted by another local guy. He said, you know, hey, I had all these Bigfoot experiences. Meet me out in this area called Palm Bank. So I meet him there that day. And that's not where he had his Bigfoot experience. It was like less than a mile away from, from his experience uh, as the crow flies. And he says, you, do you know why we're here? I said, no. And like, he's like, well, my experience was, you know, up up the mountain a little ways. He's like, but this is a place called Palm Bank. And right here, there's a story of of a woman in white. And this whole legend of this, this, you know, ghost of a woman in white. So now I'm thinking, okay, so there has to be something to this. I went to another local site, a guy had seen two bigfoot on his property. And uh, I did all the normal stuff that he saw him across the pond. I went, you know, went over there with my walking stick. How tall were they? You know, I'm raising my stick, tell me when to stop, where were they standing, et cetera, et cetera. As I'm packing up my stuff, he kind of comes up to me and he just offhandedly mentions like, you know, my house is haunted too. And, me being who I am. I'm like, okay, it's like, put the brakes on and tell me about this. And he starts telling me about all this poltergeist phenomenon and, and show me pictures of, of these very typical kind of ghost pictures. these kind of hazy kind of smoky figures. He'd taken photos of. And he said, but I have one that's clear as day. I took in my mirror. I was like, well, let me see it. Let me see it. And he shows me his photo and it's a woman in a white dress. He just took a picture of her in, in his mirror. I was like, Oh my goodness. So, so now I'm like, okay, so there's something to this. And it was probably around this time that I mentioned to Josh, and he was kind of like, well, you know, you you go for that, Tim. <laughs> go ahead, waste your time on that. I started digging in, and I, so I'm looking into these women in white sightings in Europe, these the royal families in Europe would have these women in white sightings, and they would always predict death for them. And I came across, I think it was the Austrian royal family. They had a name for this woman, and they they called her Bertha. And it hmm. said... I'm reading about this, and Bertha is a, sort of a medieval form of, of Perkta. This, and they call her a goddess. She's not quite a goddess. She's more of a, like a fairy figure, one of these, like a Baba Yaga, or, or you know, one of these sort of... Uh, yeah, yeah, very folklory, kind of yeah. witchy sort of figure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, so I was like, well, I, now I need to look into this. So I'm looking into, into Perkta, and this is what, what blew the whole thing open for me. So it says, you know, Perkta always wore white. She would appear either as young and beautiful or as an old hag. She had very interesting, either one or both feet were oversized and took the form of a swan's foot. So here we have the three-toed bird foot again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. This woman in white, but then it, it broke down to her, her kind of retinue. And she has these two groups that follow her around. One is known as the Heimchen. And these are all the souls of the lost children that she she you know lured into the woods and and who died. And they take the form of Will-o'-the-Wisps. So here we have these orbs that follow her around. And then the other part of her retinue, and this is just what sealed the deal for me, was what's called the Perkton. And this is a group of hairy wild men that follow her around. And right then I was just like, okay, this is a thing. And started looking in folklore all over the world. And there is example after example I've not found it in Asia yet. <laughs> I'm saying yet because I have confidence that at some point I'm going to find something. But all over the world, in Africa, you know, Native American accounts, in, in Europe, there are these folkloric wild men, and their wife or their female counterpart, or they just different names for them, is a, a woman who wears white or sometimes... Uh, rarely a lot less common it is a a white creature it's a similar creature but she's also white but uh it, and it's just again and again it's in russia it's in england it's you know all across europe it's it's everywhere in northern africa i think just it's incredible and it just keeps going and going and, and you know at this point we found probably just as much again that that i listed in the book that people have contacted us with since then it's just like here's another example here's another example and Baba and Yaga lives
2: have... in a in a in a in a hut that travels around on chicken feet lives, oh. yep exactly yeah. and there are
3: some <laughs> there's some uh, baba Yaga analogs in like Siberia that are tall and covered in hair and bulletproof, which is another thing that people talk about bigfoot yeah you know. um but uh no people have sort of taken this in run with it in terms of uh we had one one guy who said that uh he was wondering if like. The, the the christmas tree wasn't uh the bigfoot like a representation of bigfoot itself <laughs> because um you know you've got the tree which is the outdoors you've got the 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 balls which are the balls of you know the orbs of light that people see around bigfoot you've got the woman in white as the angel on the top and of course santa claus is bigfoot i mean santa claus is a wild man you know <laughs> uh, there's there's a pretty clear, there's a there's a clear I mean you could probably do a third book just on this, Tim. It's 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 there's a clear line that you can trace through Dionysus and the green man and Odin and the wild man and Santa Claus and satyrs. Well, and, and
2: how many ones. blurry photos have been taken in front of a Christmas tree on Christmas morning exactly?
3: <laughs> it's the Bigfoot Force Field. Yeah. <laughs> oh. But, oh, 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 and then the uh, the Thomas Campion thing, Tim. Yes, you're going to make me try to remember that quote them that die maids lead apes in hell
1: that was a, a quote used in uh i think late med- medieval early renaissance time and it it started out as a sort of uh, in use to by protestants to um kind of uh take a jab at the catholic clergy priests and nuns and but uh <laughs> if you look into it uh there's all of these, again, folkloric stories that sort of conform to that. Um, is that the aspect of it you wanted me to dig into, Josh? I... No, no, I just
3: thought it was, I mean, I just thought it was interesting because you've got that. Then uh, the Dime Maids implies, as you mentioned, white and then leading ropes right. in hell.
0: Well, I was also just going to add that the uh, women in white, when you were initially telling me the, the story, it made me think of Vanishing Hitchhikers and uh, I... I just wondered if there was some possible link to to those kinds of stories, too, like Resurrection Mary, a woman in white who's, who keeps reappearing, and, and if there's, might be some kind of link there, too.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you tend to get these women in white stories, and then you can kind of map Bigfoot accounts on top of them a lot of times. A lot of times, you know, people will see them in the same place. Um, you know, in general, the woman in white, like archetype, spirit, whatever you want to call it, is – universal and it's it's even more common than than the wild man for sure so you get these these women in white stories certainly without the wild man uh, associated right. with it and you get wild man stories without the woman in white but you know i found so many so many accounts of it that uh you, you know there's there's some you know maybe not all the time but there's there's definitely a, a relationship there worth exploring i think
3: sure sure that's a good that's a really good question i you know, I I have described a couple times this project to Tim as as uh, drinking through a hose. You know, because <laughs> there really is. We we've been told for years and years and years that this that these weird Bigfoot things are these examples are outliers. They don't happen that often, and you know, they, if if they do happen, it's a coincidence. And, and man, we left a lot of stuff out. We really oh, left yeah. a lot of stuff out
1: yeah we we could have I mean no, I don't think we could have been uh exhaustive, you know and, and put every case we we just used a few cases to you know illustrate each point in some chapters we use more than others because something you know like like weird lights in Bigfoot, you know I think we use a lot more examples than other chapters just to show people like how how common it is for people to see you know weird lights around Bigfoot but it, you know in no case did we use everything. And if we, mm-hmm. I like to say, if we used every weird case we found, there, there probably would have been 10 books. You know, it's just, there's so much of it. There's, just, there's no to, shortage to, of it.
3: Yeah, and to to say nothing of tracking down every eyewitness that we that we can, you know, I mean, that's just. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I want to highly recommend, I'm not high, I, I'm just a little buzzed, but I, I want to highly recommend <laughs> your books to our listeners. Um, I really enjoyed them. I think they will too. Um, I And I think you do a, a really important uh, bit of work here pulling out the stuff that's commonly ignored in these stories i think there's just so much weirdness that's being left out in order to sort of make this stuff comport to a physical real world and mm-hmm. uh you know as skeptics we say well hey these these stories they've got a lot of holes in them but uh, i mean that doesn't even cover it there's so much more going on here than just the uh the 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 sort of light skeptical treatment there's a lot of sh- straight up bizarre quasi supernatural, paranormal adjacent, if not pure paranormal stuff going on here. It's weird. And I, I it's the kind of stuff I think our listeners will enjoy reading, but I think it's also like it's um kind of an indictment against the field that I think that in their efforts to sort of get that sort of uh scientific endorsement, they're leaving out huge swaths of the actual case files. So I, I would agree. I would agree. I think, you know, that we need to talk about all of it. Which brings us to I guess the question everybody in our audience is wondering, guys, w- what's your favorite monster?
3: Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be a complete hipster here and 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 mention something that I never talk about, um, that nobody I feel like ever talks about, and that's the Nandy Bear. What? Go on. I really I really like the Nandy Bear. Um. It's this East African creature that um, has been seen. It exists in in uh, not only in folklore of the region, but also you know there have been uh, explorers, quote unquote, who 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 have seen it. And it's uh, by varying description, it's like this African bear, but Africa doesn't have bears. Um, And uh, other descriptions, it looks like a hyena, so like a bear hyena hybrid. Um, and people have, s- have suspected that it might be um, a, a relict uh, herbivore or like a relict, you know, giant. Uh, there's these things called, uh, I think they're called chelicotheres or something like that. Um, anyway, I've really found that Nandy Bear interesting because nobody talks about it. And uh it sounds like I just pulled that out of my, my butt. Chelicotheres but... ch- <laughs> movie. Ch- yeah. Yeah, that thing. Yeah, um,
0: <laughs> I think that was in response to us saying earlier that we've heard it all. <laughs>
3: yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I thought he was sneezing. So um, science. <laughs> but oh, sorry, bless you. What? When my family sneezes, we we yell science. <laughs> it, it, it's one of those. It's one of those cryptids though that that might stand a good chance of being proven as being an actual animal. It's not a weird weirdo cryptid. But uh, I've always really thought that was a really interesting idea because, again, people never hear about it so I'm
2: like No, yeah, I don't think we've ever talked about yeah. it on the show. I, no,
0: I have heard of it before. I think so. we have to now.
3: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And
2: we'll put a link to that in the show notes. The Nandy Bear. <laughs> Timothy,
1: you Tim turn. doesn't
3: know who I am anymore.
1: <laughs> Josh's next book is is all about the Nandy Bear, I think. It's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, Bigfoot, but a very specific kind of Bigfoot and my favorite Bigfoot cases. And, you know, a lot of guys into Bigfoot, they collect, you know, Bigfoot toys and Bigfoot figures and stuff. And I do too, but only of this very specific kind. So I don't care about Brown Bigfoot. I don't care about black Bigfoot. I don't care about any other Bigfoot, but green Bigfoot. I love green Bigfoot. I love green Bigfoot stories. I collected one myself, uh, a local guy in an area called Toad Road. It's, it's right about it, my, my first book, and in Don't Look Behind You Again. Um, I There was one in the, the aforementioned Two Brothers case that, that we talked about in Sasquatch Chronicles. One of the creatures they saw, they said, was green. Uh, I just noticed that green book
2: foot is also a chronic strain. That's interesting. Nice.
0: Sounds like
1: Christmas uh, Bigfoot. Yeah. and <laughs> uh,
0: Christmas the,
1: tree. There's a case you talk about, you know, the strangeness being, you know, cut away from these cases or sanded off. Uh, There's a a case called Fluorescent Freddy. And in all the – that was written about it, you would read about this big hairy creature that people were seeing in the 1950s in I think it was Indiana. And they'd say, oh, yeah, they they called him Fluorescent Freddy because he had – red or orange glowing eyes, depending on, on who you read about it. Well, I dug in and I, I found the original newspaper reports and he was called Fluorescent Freddy. Yes, he did have red or orange glowing eyes, but he had green fur and that's mm. why they were green hair and that's why they called him, the kids in the neighborhood called him Fluorescent Freddy because he had bright green hair. So I love green Bigfoot and those are the only uh, sort of Bigfoot ephemera kind of things I actually call and that it. That sounds so much like the green man from, from England. Sure. Yeah,
2: yeah. I have a friend who's uh, you know. There's a whole bunch of Green men pubs, and they actually have like a Green men Pub Association for all the people who own a Green men pub. Huh. And so, one of my friends here in Georgia has set up a British pub in his basement. And he's from England, and he's he's got this beautiful Green men pub, and he's got the Green men logo all over the place. He he set up um, giant megaliths in his backyard. It's so cool. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, That's awesome.
0: Well, they both proved us wrong anyway with their answers.
2: No oh, no this is good stuff. I hadn't yeah, you know, this is these are great. We've never had these before. These are these are great. Well, guys, thank you so much for making time for us today and, and we will yeah, put links you. to your books in our show notes and uh I think our listeners will really get a, a kick out of reading your work. And Let's I thanks so much. I noticed in one of your interviews you hinted that you'd be doing an Audible version or have you guys done any work on that yet?
1: uh you we have to figure out what form it's going to take uh we had a company reach out to us but uh, th- that didn't work out so uh yeah there, there at some point there should be an audio version but we'll, we'll figure it out well i hope you do when you do please let me know especially if it's on audible because i'll be snatching that up will do monster talk
2: you've been listening to monster talk the science show about monsters i'm blake smith
0: and i'm karen Stolzner.
2: You've been listening to an interview with Timothy Renner and Joshua Kutchen, talking about their two-volume look at Bigfoot stories that are weirder than what you're probably used to. Where are the footprints in? Volume 1, The Folklore, and Volume 2, The Evidence. A link to these and the other books we mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes. Reading all these strange, quasi-paranormal Bigfoot reports doesn't make me any more inclined to believe in the reality of these animals but it continues to fascinate me and makes me think that there's a lot about the human mind and the way we experience the world that we still don't understand scientifically. Will we ever? I don't know. But pretending that such reports don't happen certainly moves us no further towards understanding the phenomena and the many overlapping fields that comprise monsterology. Hey, Monster Talkers, we'll be doing a live Monster Talk this Sunday night, April 4th, 2021 at 8 p.m. Eastern. I think that will be found at youtube.com forward slash monster talk, but be sure and check our monster talk Facebook page or our feed at patreoncom forward slash monster talk for the latest information on that. This week, we're going to be discussing two really interesting vampire cases and it should be a lot of fun. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of monster talk. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you so much for listening and for your support.
0: been a Monster House presentation.